Gracias. Double Elvis. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Mick Jagger, Rolling Stone, the preening proto-rock star, celebrity incarnate. You know about David Bowie, the man who fell to earth, the brightest light of glam rock under a perpetual reinvention. But this is not about them. This is about Claudia Lanier, the stellar gypsy. She stood toe-to-toe with Tina Turner, rocked out with the space choir, backed George Harrison and Bob Dylan, and made a killer solo album before choosing another path. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl. Mick Jagger was killing time. It was 1969, and the Rolling Stones frontman was in Australia shooting his first film, Ned Kelly. There was a lot of downtime, though, and Mick was feeling an unfamiliar sensation. He was lonely. His girlfriend, singer Marianne Faithful, had also been scheduled to appear in the film, but immediately upon their arrival in Australia together, she swallowed 150 sleeping pills in a suicide attempt. She was discovered by Mick, who got her to a hospital, and she survived. But now she was recovering at a nearby ranch, attended to by her mother while Mick had to work. He felt awful for her, guilty for her pain. He wrote her letters every day from the set. But eventually, his thoughts drifted. He missed the breakneck speed of his jet-set life, the recording and the touring. He missed the girls, the groupies, the sex. But nothing to be done about it now. He played guitar and tried to write, coming up one day with a nasty little riff. To entertain himself, he made up dummy lyrics. Black pussy went this one. On his mind was a sometime girlfriend, a black American singer. Work on the film distracted him, but he kept coming back to the song and started getting more serious about it. He changed the lyrical hook, a non-starter even for the bad boy image the Stones liked to present, to Brown Sugar, a phrase less direct but really no less provocative. The crass reference was calculated, like most everything Mick did, alluding to a street name for heroin in addition to black female sexuality, which British pop stars had lately commodified as a mark of authenticity, masculinity, and a special level of cool cachet. He wrote verses, a murky pseudo-commentary on slavery and history, power, and, of course, drugs and interracial sex. The messiness of the words, on top of a pounding full-tilt groove, 
would make a song that started as a goof into one of the Rolling Stones' biggest hits. Of course, people wanted to know what or who it was about. The truth is that in 1969, Mick Jagger was sexually involved with several black women, and the inspiration for Brown Sugar could have been any of them, or all of them. Present-day defenders of the controversial song, including nominal co-writer and the Stones guitarist Keith Richards, have been at pains to point out the part of the lyric that reads as a narrative about slavery and the rape and abuse of a female slave by her white master, although nowhere in it does the narrator do anything to condemn the horrors described. And these defenders stop short of grappling with the celebratory vibe of the recording, the wink and nod, that is no small part of the song's classic rock status. Mick has been slowly distancing himself from Brown Sugar for years, first by dropping some of the most offensive and jarring lyrics, including lines about whipping and getting on your knees, then finally by taking the song out of the set list for good. God knows what I'm on about in that song, Jagger dodged, acknowledging it as nasty and a mishmash. He said, I never would write that song now. But one of the many Stones fans who wish Brown Sugar would make it back into the repertoire also happens to be its most likely source of inspiration, singer Claudia Lanier. A songwriter herself, Lanier values the music over the controversy. It's just a great riff, she said. It's a great hook. Young Claudia Lanier dreamed not about music stardom, but rather of being an interpreter for the United Nations. She studied French, Spanish, and German. That all changed in 1964 when her parents moved the family from Providence, Rhode Island to Pomona, California. Claudia was a senior in high school. Moving across the country felt like a bad bounce. But there were consolations. In stark contrast to the secondary market status of Providence, Pomona's proximity to Hollywood afforded Claudia the chance to see some of her favorite singers, like Gladys Knight, Tina Turner, Carla Thomas, and Patti LaBelle. She started meeting new friends. Claudia liked to network. It came naturally. People just seemed to respond to her. One connection would lead to another, and pretty soon she was as comfortable in L.A. as she was in Rhode Island. She was in college in 1968 when she met a couple of guys who were in a band called The Superbs. They were getting ready to record a new single, but their female lead singer was leaving the group to get married. Claudia's deep appreciation of R&B, soul, and blues impressed the two musicians. On top of that, well, she was a looker tall and shapely with a dazzling smile. They asked her if she would consider helping them out on their fast approaching recording session. The UN, it turned out, would have to do without Claudia Lanier. The recording, One Bad Habit, was released by Doré Records and became a local hit. With Claudia up front, the group gigged around the Los Angeles area, but her stint as a superb would be brief. Claudia had reached out to Shirley Matthews, a singer and producer with Motown Records, and the two met up at a Temptation show in L.A. They were talking about the music business and what Claudia was up to with the Superbs, and then Shirley said, I can get you an audition for Ike and Tina Turner. 
Right, sure, Claudia thought. Still, she got butterflies in her stomach. She was crazy for Ike and Tina. Shirley had to be fucking with her. Like, she was just gonna set up this 21-year-old girl she didn't even know with Ike Turner. Ike was a well-known R&B pioneer who made arguably the first rock and roll record ever with his Rocket 88 before discovering singer Anna Bullock in St. Louis and reinventing her as Tina Turner. But Shirley was not fucking with Claudia. She called Ike and arranged an audition. Ike and Tina's review-style show featured female backing singers and dancers called the Ikeettes, and being an Ikeette was a grueling job. There was a lot of turnover girls were often in demand. Claudia went to meet Ike. He looked her over and listened to her sing. She was nervous as hell. Ikeettes didn't just have to sound good. He made sure that you had a certain look, that you were able to walk a certain way, Claudia recalled. But she was feeling good about the audition as it went on. And suddenly, Ike shouted, Anna! Anna! Claudia realized what was going on when Anna, a.k.a. Tina, came into the room. Tina had to approve all the Ikeettes. Ike Turner was the undisputed boss of the operation. But he viewed the girls as Tina's domain. And where he was perfunctory in Claudia's audition, Tina came in with a more critical eye. After all, the Ikeettes on stage were basically her shadows. And if they looked bad, she looked bad. After auditioning for Tina, though, Claudia guessed she did not look bad. Because she got the gig. She was an Iket. In the decades after Tina left him, Ike's reputation would hit bottom. He is remembered today primarily as a malevolent abuser and volatile drug addict, with his musical accomplishments running a distant second. Claudia Lanier's experience with Ike wasn't that bad. He was a terrific business person, she said. Very disciplined, and he was a visionary. She doesn't doubt Tina's now public account of Ike's violence, but she says, During the three years I was an Iket, I never witnessed any physical abuse. Three pivotal years. Claudia learned precision, endurance, and self-discipline. It was my first experience with the army, she said with a laugh. The culture of the Ike and Tina Turner review was, when you're on stage, you perform not 100%, but at least 200%. You had to do that to keep up with Tina. She's such a ball of energy. Believe me, it was like boot training. It was really preparing me for the future. Claudia got that the first job of an ICAT was to look good. I think we were the first action figures of R&B, she said. To have these girls with the flying hair, the dance movement, supporting Tina while she sang. I guess we were providing the eye candy. That was all Ike Turner's idea. I think he perfected that. I'll give credit where it's due. To Claudia, every night on stage was a new peak. Tina became like a sister to her and the other girls. Ike and Tina were at the peak of their career together after a string of hits, and Claudia got into the studio with them as they churned out records. It was educational in every sense. 
including some not-so-nice experiences. The Ike and Tina Review still had to rely on the Chitlin Circuit, a string of venues around the U.S., usually Black-owned and friendly to Black artists. In the late 60s, they were often dives, bars and bowling alleys. And for the girl from Providence, trips into the Deep South were terrible lessons in the endurance of unvarnished racism. But Ike and Tina were also worldwide. It was the late 60s and everything was happening. Claudia was mingling with future legends. The Rolling Stones had the review open for them whenever possible. Mick Jagger was enamored of Tina Turner and borrowed a lot of his stage moves from her. On the two, honey, on the two, Tina corrected Mick as she tried to teach him the sideways pony while the Icats and various stones looked on, laughing. Let's try it again. One, two, three, four, five. God, Mick, you're scaring me. Mick feigned desperation. Does this mean I won't be black in the next life? Tina said, are you sure you want to be? He knew better than to put any moves back on Tina. Not while Ike was around. Instead, he took notice of Claudia. 30 years later, he still recalled fondly. She was, like, the really hot one of the Ikeheads. Great dancer, very hot, beautiful girl. Claudia and Mick hooked up, but were on and off. Busy schedules kept things from going very far, as did the fact that Mick was still very much involved with girlfriend Marianne Faithful. He was also having affairs around the same time with two other Black American singers, Devon Wilson, briefly, and Marsha Hunt, who later gave birth to his daughter. But consensus is that it was Claudia he was thinking of that particular day on the Australian set of Ned Kelly when he came up with Brown Sugar. By the time the song came out in 1971, though, Claudia had moved on. She was still working as an ICAT in 1970, but was starting to feel restless. She was a singer, not an action figure. The whole image was starting to feel dated and stifling. The Iquettes were all glammed up, and Claudia didn't see any rockers out there with diamond rings on. She said to Ike and Tina, maybe we need to relax if we're gonna cross over, and the way we dress and the jewelry we wear and that kind of thing. Her bosses didn't want to hear it. She said, I could very well have just turned around and talked to the wall and got a better response. And one night, as they headed toward the stage for a performance, Tina started giving her shit about some minor detail or another. Tired and frustrated, Claudia pushed back. It wasn't exactly a falling out, but it was a clash that sealed the deal for her. After the set, she went to Ike and Tina and quit. Thanks for everything, but I'm out. She left the Iquettes with a much bigger network than she'd gone into it with, and it came through for her almost immediately. Claudia had recently met Graham Parsons, the doomed country rock pioneer who had played with the birds and who had just left his own group, the Flying Burrito Brothers. He was a close buddy of Keith Richards, so he and Claudia overlapped in the evolving concentric circles of the Stones. Graham was getting ready to record some demos for a solo project, and he asked Claudia to help him out in the studio. They were at A&M Studios in Hollywood, where Graham was working with producer Terry Melcher. They had worked together with The Birds, 
and were now working primarily on piles of cocaine and heroin together. These sessions would soon be abandoned, but with Claudia in the room, they managed to cut one of Graham's new songs. All right, I think we got this one, he drawled. Then to Claudia, hey, come on over across the hall. Some friends of mine are rehearsing. I want you to meet them. Claudia walked with him down to a soundstage where she was stunned to see an enormous band with multiple drummers and a big choir of singers and other musicians. Leading the assembly were singer Joe Cocker, already a big star, and Leon Russell, a songwriter and in-demand studio multi-instrumentalist. This is Claudia. She's one of the Iquettes, Graham told them. Leon came to attention. He was wild for the Ike and Tina records. They talked for a few minutes and invited Graham and Claudia to listen to the band rehearse. Joe Cocker had been scheduled for a big tour by his management, who had neither informed him nor arranged a band. He called up Leon to help him get it together in short order, and they were about to hit the road. The band launched into The Letter, a 1967 hit for the box tops. Claudia, who had been wondering how the hell a band this sprawling could function at all, heard everything come together. Everyone was spinning off each other, improvising, getting into the groove, laughing and shouting. It was such a contrast to her experience with Ike and Tina, which had been so tightly choreographed. Then they asked her, would you sing something with us? Well, I, I don't know the set. What song do you know, Leon asked. She tried to think. She had no other work lined up and did not want to let this chance pass. So she said the first song that popped into her head, I could sing Let It Be. Leon led the band into a funky version of the Beatles hit, and Claudia let loose with a vocal inspired by the blues and spirituals she grew up with. She said yes before they finished asking her to join what would be titled The Space Choir. It had been 10 days since she left the Icats. She was about to hit the road with the legendary Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, which would play 48 cities, spawn a live album, a top 10 hit single, and a concert film that featured Claudia's spotlight performance of Let It Be. By the time the tour was done, she had a new nickname, The Stellar Gypsy. It was the time of her life, an inverse of the Ike and Tina Turner review. The Iquettes, she was beginning to realize, really was a boot camp for backing singers, and she was meeting and hearing about others who'd been through it, who sang for Ray Charles, Motown, Bob Dylan, and the Stones, people like Vanetta Fields and Clyde King, Brenda and Patrice Holloway, and P.P. Arnold, who was another girlfriend of Mick Jagger. The tour wound down in May 1970. Exhausted, Claudia returned to L.A. as a suddenly in-demand session vocalist. Leon Russell wasn't done with her yet, though. In 1971, he recorded his second solo album and he put together a group he called The Shelter People, session musicians connected to his record label Shelter, to perform on some of the tracks. He asked Claudia to join. Leon Russell and The Shelter People came out that year and went gold. Early copies of the LP included a sampler disc of other Shelter record artists like Freddie King and J.J. Kale, and it opens with the little girl singing Good Morning to You. 
The girl is Claudia's daughter, Dana, born in 1966, the result of an unplanned pregnancy, raised with the help of Claudia's parents. Claudia called Dana, the hippest mistake I ever made, a wonderful kid. On August 1st, 1971, Claudia found herself standing on the darkened stage of Madison Square Garden, holding her breath and literally praying that Bob Dylan would emerge from the side stage. A week earlier, she'd again been on tour with Leon when he got a call from George Harrison. George was putting together an all-star relief benefit concert for the people of Bangladesh, a country that had been hit with multiple devastating natural disasters. Leon asked Claudia to join him in performing with the band, which included Harrison and Ringo Starr, Billy Preston and Eric Clapton, among others, with Bob Dylan joining later in the show. It was a huge, unprecedented event, and Claudia felt the magic of the moment. She couldn't believe she was sharing the stage with two Beatles, and finally, Bob Dylan, who was so nervous they weren't sure he'd be coming out at all until he emerged for a rapturous crowd. There had been only one full band rehearsal, but the concert for Bangladesh was a huge success, raising millions of dollars between the two shows that day and the live album. Claudia summed up the event. It was cosmic. Claudia Lanier was sitting at a London nightclub with producer Ian Samuel. It was 1969. The two were trying to talk, but a group of young boys at a nearby table were getting drunk, animated, and very loud. All, that is, but one of them. A good-looking blonde who kept glancing over and smiling at Ian. Maybe we should change tables, Claudia said to Ian. Ian said no, it was fine. He knew the group. They were musicians. A waiter came over with a bottle of Pouy Fousse. The quiet lad with the blonde mod haircut had sent it over, a gesture of apology for disturbing them. Then the guys were gone. Ian explained that this was a popular singer-songwriter in the London folk scene named David Bowie, who knew of Claudia as a singer and friend of the Rolling Stones. He gave Claudia a copy of Bowie's record minutes before she got on a flight back to America. David Bowie lingered in her mind, the handsome, quiet center of that social storm. She internalized the songs on his album. Three years later, David Bowie was in the U.S., touring behind his breakthrough record, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. Backstage at his L.A. show, Claudia was finally formally introduced to him for the first time. They hit it off talking about R&B and discovering they loved a lot of the same singers, like Dee Dee Sharp and Irma Franklin. They made arrangements to connect through their mutual agent, and he walked her to the door. I hope we can talk again soon, he said. And of course they did. They talked on the phone and met up in New York. When he was in LA after that, David would often stay at Claudia's home in the Hollywood Hills. She set up a bedroom for him next to her music room, so that he could go in whenever he was inspired. She called it the Star of David Suite. She said it offered him privacy, a quiet space, 
relaxation and a creative environment in which to read or write without distraction. Claudia at the time had regular work on sessions for artists like Freddie Kane, Humble Pie, Stephen Sills, and Al Cooper. She was also being courted by record labels for a solo deal. David was with her one day when she got a call from an exec at Warner Brothers Records who wanted to come by and hear a song that she told them about. He hoped to get a demo. Shit, she thought. She had the equipment to record, but her percussionist, who was also her technical engineer, was out of town. I'll be your sound engineer, David offered. He set up the mics and her four-track tape machine and got levels. He made suggestions for string parts and choirs, like a producer. He was just as good behind the scenes as he was on stage, Claudia recalled. He knew how to listen. The label guy was thrilled with the song. When he was gone, David showed Claudia how to do the engineering herself. He loved producing, she could tell, the excited way he was talking. It didn't surprise her, though. It was in the way he approached everything in life, the way he organized and made sense of things. Sometimes, she said, when the puzzle pieces of my life got confusing, he was always there to find a way to fit them together correctly. Inevitably, their relationship became romantic, and they spent all the time they could together, though that was limited. David was working on his next album, Aladdin Sane, and Claudia was beginning work on her solo album with Ian Samwell, the same producer who'd been with her when she'd first seen David in that London club. When Aladdin Sane came out, it included a song called Lady Grinning Soul. Claudia never presumed to think this was about her, despite some telling biographical details. You never know how you're affecting him, she later reflected. If you're in his company, you don't know what impression you're making on him. Aladdin Sane producer Ken Scott talked about Lady Grinning Soul. It must have really meant something special to David because it was the first time he ever came in for a mix and had a very strong feeling about how he wanted it. I have no idea who he wrote it for, but it was obviously very important to him. The beautiful ballad was undoubtedly written for Claudia, a somewhat more romantic gesture than Brown Sugar, but David didn't mention it to her. But as time went on, he and Claudia struggled to keep their connection together. There were too many factors keeping them apart. A final argument between them ended with her storming off in a fury, and that closed the book. Claudia's solo album, entitled Phew, came out in 1973. It contained nods to both David with a recording of the Ron Davey song, It Ain't Easy, which had been on David Ziggy Stardust LP and Mick Jagger via a tongue-in-cheek kiss-off song called Not At All that she wrote herself. Though critically acclaimed, the album was not a hit. Its marketing and reception illustrate the particular difficulties Black women faced at this time in rock music. It was pitched as two albums in one, a rock side and an R&B side, directed at two audiences. They described her musical tastes as straddling the so-called extremes of the two. It's hard to imagine a marketing department trying to sell a white, R&B-heavy rock band like the Rolling Stones in such a convoluted way. 
It prevented Claudia from having a strong public identity of her own, trying instead to either capitalize on or explain away her blackness. Or both. It might go without saying that the album was also marketed on Claudia's sexuality, her apparent beauty and her reputation as brown sugar. She was encouraged to play into the stereotype of black female sexuality, and she even consented to appearing topless in Playboy. But this emphasis on sex only hurt her as a live performer, with reviews lamenting the lack of focus on her singing. Things were becoming too much for Claudia. The responsibility and expense of leading a band on one hand and trying to raise a daughter on the other. These couldn't coexist. Her daughter Dana was staying with her brother's family while she tried to work things out. Pretty quickly, she got the feeling that her time was up. Rock and roll seemed like a younger person's game, and she had to make a choice. Claudia Lanier cashed out. Claudia Lanier was riding in the back of a chauffeur-driven car, heading down Interstate 10 towards Santa Monica, when her mobile phone rang. Unknown number. She ignored it. It rang again. Unknown number. She picked up. Claudia came in unmistakable voice. Is that my lady grinning soul? She was stunned. David, is that you? It was 2014, and she was on her way to the Independent Spirit Awards. Claudia had recently appeared in the Oscar-winning documentary 20 Feet from Stardom about the unheralded backing vocalists who contributed to so many beloved hit songs. In the film, Claudia gave an overview of her life in music and how she ultimately decided to walk away, returning to her first love, languages. She became a teacher of French and Spanish at Mount San Antonio College in Southern California. Somehow, there's always a little birdie that lets my students know that I sing, she says. I always give it four weeks into the semester. Here comes the first person who Googles me. They think they're being taught by somebody famous. At the end of 20 Feet from Stardom, though, Claudia admits that she wonders if she gave that life up too hastily. It's always been a missing link, she said. A regret that I didn't just hang in there. I never said that it wasn't for me. It's always been for me. Always. David Bowie, who also appeared in the documentary, thought so too. She'd been on his mind even before the film. In 2008, he wrote about his song, Lady Grinning Soul. This was written for a wonderful young girl whom I have not seen for more than 30 years. When I hear this song, she's still in her 20s, of course. A song will put you tantalizingly close to the past, so close that you can almost reach out and touch it. Now, in 2014, he had decided to put that idea to the test. As Claudia's car sped down the highway, David made a proposal. I'd like to help you with your career after this, he said. Maybe we could get together and do a recording. He wanted to help her write a new album. He would write the music, and she would write the lyrics. Of course, she agreed. But she was anxious about starting again after so long. And she would delay, but he kept pushing her. You really need to get on with it, he texted her. They communicated over FaceTime, his preferred method, and began working on the songs. 
What she didn't know was that he was sick with cancer. Before they were able to get very far, she received a call in January 2016. David had passed away. The recording industry lost its best and brightest artist, she said. I lost a friend like no other. He was the most unique man I've ever met. But David's encouragement, along with the positive feedback from the success of 20 Feet from Stardom, hit its mark. And Claudia has glued the two worlds of her life together. She continues performing and celebrating the legacy of her past and the icon she shared it with. Before Leon Russell died in 2016, he participated with Claudia in a reunion of the surviving Mad Dogs and Englishman crew. It was a performance led by Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi. Another documentary was made looking back on the original tour through the lens of the reunion show. Claudia even keeps in touch with the Rolling Stones. They sent a car to take me to their concert a couple weeks ago, she said in 2021. She was disappointed that Brown Sugar was not in the show. Backstage, she made a suggestion to Mick. Why not just do it as an instrumental and let the audience sing it? Mick responded, hmm. But this isn't about him, or David, or Leon, or Ike, or Tina. This is about Claudia Lanier, soul singer, stellar gypsy, rock goddess, muse, mother, and teacher. Never more than 20 feet from stardom. This is About a Girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janowitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elbows. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Scott Janowitz. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janowitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.